You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello listeners, brothers and sisters, fans and enemies, welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Please be sure to check us out, perchperspectives.com, for samples of our work, to sign up for our free newsletter. Also, if you have any comments or questions, anything at all that you want to say about this podcast or anything in particular, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. Uh, joining me today on the podcast is Dario Fabri. We had this conversation roughly about two weeks ago on June 26th. Uh, Dario is a journalist, a scientific advisor, and the America coordinator at Limes, uh, which is an Italian journal on geopolitics. It's spelled Limes, and if you speak or read Italian, I uh, highly suggest that you check it out. I was supposed to be in Genoa at Limes's annual geopolitics festival back in March, but that obviously got canceled by COVID-19. And this is the the first real chance I've had to to catch up with Dario since COVID-19 and and since the world has basically turned upside down. We had an interesting conversation and even a few disagreements. It's always good when an Italian and a Jew can raise their voices at each other and yell at each other about uh, important topics affecting geopolitics today. So thank you, Dario, so much for coming on. Listeners, uh, we appreciate your support and your your choosing to spend some time with us as always. Uh, we'll continue to see you out there. Did you see that poll that the European Council on Foreign Relations did recently that's kind of been making the, the rounds in the media? About about what? Um, I actually... I'm not, didn't see it. So, I'm not yeah, sure. It was about... Yeah, it was about how Europeans are feeling about the European Union's response to COVID-19. Okay. And I, I wanted to ask you about it because um, obviously you're there in Rome and you're mm-hmm. in Italy. And it was interesting because 63% of Italians apparently said that the EU had not lived up to its responsibilities. Okay, I understand and 40, the point. <laughs> and 40% of Italians said that the EU was completely irrelevant. But they also had a question in there that said, um, what does this mean for the future of the EU? And 77% of Italians said that COVID-19 had demonstrated that there was a greater need for European cooperation. So I guess what I wanted to ask you is, from, from your own perspective and from your perspective there in Italy and in Rome, do you feel like people uh, are frustrated with the EU as a result of COVID-19? Mm-hmm. And do you feel like that is encouraging more Euroscepticism? Or do you think that that's actually sort of encouraging a push towards more coherence in the European Union and more support for the things that Germany and France are trying to do in order to harmonize it and make it a more strategically coherent body? Well, I'd say that uh, right at this moment, people are kind of suspended when it comes to uh, evaluating the EU response to uh, the COVID-19 emergency. Uh, Let's start by saying that for the past, let's say, 10 or 15 years, uh, Italians, especially the Italian public, has gone from an extreme to to, to another for uh, 20 years or something, or even 30 years, even before Maastricht. Uh, Italians were were convinced that basically a more coherent uh, European uh, integration would uh, would save us all, would make us all rich, would. Uh, definitely improve our lives just because uh, Northern Europeans would do what help us through um, uh, through dire, dire times and so forth. Then, uh, let's say in the past 10 years, let's say, we've, we've gone to the other uh, extreme. So it's all uh, Europe's fault. Uh, Northern Europeans are greedy or they're, they're just not as intelligent as we, as we thought they, they were and so forth especially the Dutch, but uh, how, how can it possible that the Germans don't understand that they depend on us for the value chain, for their exports? If we didn't have the euro, we couldn't buy as, as many products, as many German products as we do and so forth. So among uh, between these two uh, very loud extremes, we're now kind of suspended, I, I think. Uh, Italians want to see uh, beyond uh, uh, statements and uh, and official statements, for that matter, they want to see the substance. They want to understand how uh, the European Union will intervene and uh, what kind of uh, recovery fund uh, will will be there. And also, 
I think that uh, there's um, there are people interested in 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 into understanding how Germany will fare. Uh, as you said, as you mentioned, now France will get will get into will we'll, we'll get into into the game, and and also how the northern Europeans that I hardly mentioned, such as the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, the so-called frugal ones, uh, Finland, and so forth, how they will try to uh, to limit uh, the grants or or the subsidies and go for uh, more loans. So we're kind of suspended. Uh, for that matter, but I but I but I wrap it up just just by adding that uh, here, especially in Italy, uh, it's kind of hard to have a debate on on um, let's say uh, more uh, uh, rational issues and more rational actors. We either tend to uh, blame the European Union for for all our shortfalls and flaws, or sometimes just the opposite. As I mentioned, we tend to. Uh, uh, we tend to uh, give the credit to you, to the European Union for for anything that goes better or just uh, moderately well in our country. Uh, I'm still waiting for something that, that could be called uh, and be understood as more rational when it comes down to the European Union. Uh, for example, understanding that the European Union is not a it's not a country. It's not it's not even close to 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 becoming a country. Maybe we'll will I'm I'm pretty sure that it will never become a country. Uh, but uh, it's it's a forum. It's it's sometimes it's even in an uh, an arena, so to speak, where a different country pursue their, their their own interests. So it's a matter of being there and trying to to pursue your own interests instead of either dreaming of the European Union that, that will foot the bill for you, or uh, on or on on the opposite, either blaming the European Union for for everything that goes wrong in your own country. Yeah, although I mean, kind of in what you said. So I, I guess what you're really saying is that the it's not really clear, and that Italy is just kind of suspended in between these two positions. But I, I noticed that it was the Dutch that you that you reserved for calling out, and not necessarily the Germans, because it seems that the Germans have overnight gone from austerity and you know no debt at all to you know bring on the stimulus, and we need to spend more, and and it's it's as you said, it's these other frugal four countries that are really having a hard time, and it's it's strange to me too because those four countries. They all have pretty weak governments, I think, which I wonder if that's part of the reason that they're not able to stick their neck out because they're they're having to sort of respond to their own domestic populations that don't want to do this. But uh, do you think it's fundamentally I mean, you have to think it's a positive thing from the perspective of the European Union and the future of the European Union that Germany has sort of finally joined France and is is trying to push forward. Right. Well, yeah, uh, I think that it, that, it, that it all revolves around Germany. Of course, France. France is basically in a in a situation akin to Italy's. It's not that far on, on economically wise from from Italy. Uh, of course, Germany's got a, a very different geopolitical weight. Uh, is, is heavier, of course, than 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 Italy when it comes to geopolitics. But uh, uh, France's economy is not that better. Uh, so France has been pushing Germany for 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 a long time to to do more. To, to foot the bill, uh, or at least partly foot the bill, to keep the eurozone uh, thriving, or at least to 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 prevent the eurozone from collapsing. Um, what what we're witnessing here, and at least according to me, is that Germany has, has, has come to the conclusion that's not something that we should that that we shouldn't uh, that we should have taken for granted uh, coming from Germany, that the eurozone has to live. And has to has to survive, and for that matter, Germany uh, should be uh, ready to to pay for. Um, for for the past years, I, I wrote many times that uh, we were living through uh, stereotypes, uh, a stereotype uh, about the, the 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 Germans, especially here in Italy. There was the stereotype that basically that basically went like this: if we do not behave. The Germans will kick us out of the euro. Will kick us out of the eurozone, of the of the common currency, of course. Just because we had the, this very strange uh, assumption about Germany, we weren't able to understand what Germany wanted. Germany's strategy is very simple when it comes to this uh, to this part of the world. Uh, Germany is not a geopolitical power, at least not a geopolitical power to core yet. 
it's still a commercial a trade superpower. Um, and it needs as many country as you can have inside the Eurozone just to, of course, to explore more and more uh, and to keep it that way. Germany will be always ready to spend. Of course, it will bluff. It will try to get you to spend more and it will try to threaten you out of the Eurozone if you don't do, if you don't do so, or at least if you don't, if you don't realize, if you don't uh, 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 make those reforms that you're asked to. But in the end, especially in, in, such, a, in such a trying times like the ones we're living here in Europe and elsewhere in the world, Germany understood that it has to spend more uh, just because it needs it, just because it needs Eurozone to live. And uh, now I'm ready that, uh, that what I wrote uh, throughout the years has now become a reality, especially for, for the Germans. Um, why? One, one, one of the questions have been asked many times is why uh, Germany doesn't understand that it has to spend more. It's kind of simple. Why doesn't Germany understand? Of course, Germany understood this even before this, this crisis right here. The problem is that Germany is not even a nation. It's made up of different nations, at least of different ethnic groups that we consider just Germans, but they're really not. Uh, Bavaria, for example, consider itself a different country. And Prussia, of course, Prussia has been abolished, especially by the Americans and the, and the Soviets after uh, the Second World War. But what we what we call Eastern Germans are just Prussians. They're they're right there, and they they were very different from 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 Bavaria and from the other parts of Western Germany. So Germany has been using the trade surplus to keep the country together because the Germans are kept together through their their incredibly efficient welfare state, which is maybe the best in the world alongside uh, Japan's or 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 or, or Canada's. Scandinavian countries that don't don't really don't really count just because they they have such small populations, but uh, Ger Germany through its welfare welfare state keeps the country together and uses part of the trade surplus. For that matter, even more so, those different ethnic groups inside of Germany wouldn't possibly tolerate that uh, the dominant class, as they call it in Berlin which it stays in Berlin, but it's, it's mostly Western, uh, Western German, uh, um, that uh, this dominant class would spend for other countries outside Germany. So that, that was the main reason why Germany wasn't ready and willing to spend. But now, just because, and I, and I wrap it up, just because Berlin sees that the Eurozone would seriously collapse if Germany doesn't do anything about it, now is understood that he has to spend more. And especially, and that of course it comes down to Italy, especially that Northern Italy has to survive. That's, a, that's something that the Germans has got very clear in their minds. Uh, Northern Italy, for those who are listening to us, is just part of Germany's value chain, especially in the, uh, in the automotive industry. Um, so Germany cannot possibly uh, make do without Northern Italy. It has to save it somehow. And that's what Germany has been doing for the past, or at least has been saying that he, that it's willing to do for the past weeks. Dario, Dario, you're going to make me do something that I don't know that I've ever done before, or at least haven't done in a long time, which is defend the Germans. I mean, it's very rich <laughs> coming coming from an Italian to say that Germany is not a unified nation, that they have different ethnic groups and all this other thing, and that there's no political coherence. I mean, I, I feel like you're describing Italy, not Germany. You, you, you might have been describing Germany at the end of the 19th century, but but certainly not now. I think you could make the case that Germany was was always saying, look, the reason you have austerity and the reason that you have a budget where you don't have too much debt spending and too much risky spending is so that when there is a crisis, you can spend and you have the ability and the flexibility in order to do so to sort of ward off the crisis. You could, I, I can make a, a compelling argument. And I, you know, I was very critical of the German approach, especially towards Greece around all that Grexit drama when it was happening in the early 2010s. But right now, if, if I'm a German policymaker, I, I feel sort of indicated. I, I preserved all this German flexibility so that when something like COVID-19 came down, uh, you know, you weren't already dealing with 100% debt to GDP ratios mm -hmm. in Germany and that you actually had the flexibility that you needed. So uh, I'll, I'll, put, I'll throw that back at you and see what you have to say there. That I, that I just agree with what you said. I'm not blaming the Germans... <laughs> That I, because I'm not blaming the Germans for being, I don't know, greedy or, or, or not understanding, as I said, the Eurozone uh, uh, flaws and, uh, and needs. What I meant is that Germany kind of walks a thin line here. 
uh, always because it's made up of different groups. Uh, for example, uh, during the COVID-19 crisis in Germany, let's say two, two months ago, uh, Munich government, the government of, Bav of uh, Bavaria just said, officially stated, that the virus was introduced into their own region, which they considered a country, by Germans. They just used this expression, by Germans, not other Germans, just because they do not consider themselves Germans. That's just something uh, that, that applies to Germany throughout the ages. Um, for example, uh, if you look at German's history, it can be considered always, or at least throughout the last two centuries, as a fight, as a clash between those ethnic groups that dominated the country. And basically, Nazi Germany was Bavaria had kind of getting the power from, from, from Prussia and kind of imposing itself into Prussia. Of course, Nazi Germany was born in Munich, as a matter of fact, and it was led by, by an Austrian. Uh, unfortunately, Nazi Germany existed, but that, that's a whole other uh, different issue. So what I'm seeing here, of course, Italy has been perceived as very ethnic uh, different, as you said, but that's not the truth. Italy is a very... Is a very um, Let's say it's a country made of only in ethnic groups. Italy is divided by by differences in in the in economy and and social development. But we don't have, for example, a different religion in Italy. Uh, Germany just split right there between two religions, of course, uh, Catholicism and 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 uh, Protestantism. Italy just only have Catholicism. If you take Salvini, which is of course the leader of Lega, the the uh, right-wing uh, party that we, I bet you all know about Italy, what he did, even though he wasn't aware of it, he took a party that was Northern League before him uh, that, that kind of pursued uh, succession from Italy that wanted to be something else, that wanted to be an independent country uh, and so forth. He made it a nationalistic party and even got a lot of votes, millions of votes in Southern Italy. That's something that can only happen in a country that doesn't have different ethnic groups. That is that otherwise. Oh come on, Dario! You 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 know you know that's if let's say the Scots, the Scottish National Party. If the Scots wanted to make the Scottish National Party a nationalistic party in the UK, it wouldn't work, just because the English and the Scots are different people. There there are different nations. Italy does, doesn't have those definitions, even though we're, we're very good at describing ourselves as different. But the Germans are much more different than Italy. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I'll finish here. If you take even so, uh, Bavaria, as I said, uh, in Munich, they have different parties. They're linked to national parties, but they're different. They're independent parties. We do not, we do not have that in Italy. They have different parties in Germany, in Spain, in the UK not in France, not in Italy, not in other European countries, not even in the U.S. Consider if you had, for example, the Republican Party, but the Republican Party had to be called another party just for Texas. That's what happens in Germany. That's why German, Germany has always been very inclined not to overstretch itself when it comes to engaging other countries, just because he fears that the parts of the country that are, that are not that united could react in different ways. Of course, though, Dario, there have been moments in U.S. history where different parties represented different states or different regional groupings, and you had splits in the mainstream political parties. Um, it's also, if, if you go far back enough in just about any country's history, you can find a period in which they were divided. The French were not always the French. If you go back to the 14 and 1500s, 1600s, of course. France was a hodgepodge of different languages, and you still have some of that in, in even reflected in linguistic differences, even though a lot of it has been smoothed out. Um, Italy has... Not not going that far back. I mean, Italy unified in the same century that Germany mm -hmm. did in the 19th century. Yeah, sure. You had different republics and different kingdoms. And just because there's no religious divide or just because Catholicism won the day in Italy, whereas Germany was unfortunate enough to sort of be on the, the fault line between Protestant and Catholic Europe, um, that doesn't mean that that Germany today is defined by by different ethnicities and different nations. I think that identity is a little more, a little bit more malleable than you're allowing here. The the thing that gives somebody like Salvini the power in Southern Italy is, is an ideological thing. He was able to pick up on the political and ideological needs of Southern Europeans, and he's been able to capitalize in on that to express, I think, a, a, a 
a view in Italy that people respond to. It was the same in Britain, you know, get, getting onto that immigration issue and saying, look, we don't like the way the European Union is doing this thing. And that was the European Union that, you know, was feeling extremely powerful, didn't want to listen to the objections of any other member states, didn't, wasn't existing in this COVID-19 realm or wasn't aware of, wasn't, um, wasn't scared of, of potentially falling apart. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I think you can, I think you can do what you're doing with Germany to just about any country. And I, I think that when we think about how identity is going to evolve in Europe, the most, you sort of alluded to this earlier, the most interesting question is, um, you're right, there's no European country, but there is certainly a European identity. It's very young. I wouldn't say it's super uh, refined or sophisticated at this point. And it certainly probably means different things in different capitals. And there's an urban, less urban divide. I don't think we can say that there are many rural areas left. But I mean, I think you can say that there is a European identity and perhaps the most interesting thing and the most important geopolitical question for Europe in the next 10 years is, does that European identity grow? Does, does the combination of a crisis like COVID-19 combined with, say, the ambitions of an external threat like Turkey or like China push the member states back together so that everybody feels more European rather than having to assert themselves that I'm German and I'm this and I'm that? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, let's say uh, we, we, we tend to, to uh, overstate, I think, the European identity that does really exist. Uh, European identity exists in university exchanges. Uh, when it comes to having fun, when when you're uh, in your in your twenties, uh, that the European identity that exists, then you go back to your own country and you you forget about being European just because the European identity doesn't exist. Don't don't even exist European values, which I've never really understood what they are. Uh, different countries around Europe they have they have their own ideas of European values. If you take Poland. To Poland, Europe should be uh, a, con a continent that defends Christianity, that defends uh, against migrants its own territory. Then you go to, uh, I don't know, uh, Spain, for example, and the Europe is something else right there. I mean, it's very easy to make love uh, through the Erasmus program. It's kind of, uh, it's definitely harder to go and die for for another European, I'm not. I, I do not see people from Sweden uh, willing to die for for a Spaniard and 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 the other way around as well. Uh, that well, but but that, but that's because nobody's attacking Swedes or Spaniards right now. If if you if I told you that Turkey was about to launch, and this is completely hypothetical, let's yeah, say course. like Turkey's if Turkey's going to uh, look towards the northern Mediterranean, let's say Turkey. Uh, decides to take a little bit of territory from Greece or decides to assert itself via Greece. You're telling me that Europeans wouldn't feel some kind of loyalty to Greece, some kind of need to help Greece push back against Turkish ambitions in the region? Uh, Turkey is, a, is, a, is, a, is an interesting case. Uh, probably so, but just because it's Turkey. If, for example, uh, let's take Russia. Towards Russia, Western Europeans have... Uh, an inclination towards Russia that is very, very different from Poland. Of course, you can tell me, yeah, because Russia has always been that far. Italy has never feared Russia, just because Russia is too far to be feared from Italy. But Poland has been, of course, subjugated by Russia, and it still lives very close to Russia. Uh, but Russia is a, is a very uh, interesting example here. Western Europe would like to have more coherent and, uh, and uh, peaceful relation with Russia. To, to the Poles, uh, Russia should be basically uh, divided into many Russias just for them to be to, to feel safe. Um, so no, uh, Europeans wouldn't react in, in the same way to, to the same threat. It depends on the region. Turkey is a, is a, is a different kind of, of, of issue just because Turkey kind of scares all Europeans. There are no Europeans, uh, maybe it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of history, I don't know, but, but I cannot, at least on my part, I cannot uh, trace any European that, that feels comfortable around, for example, Turkey now being in Libya, and, um, and I know that we're going to talk about that later, but just let me finish what you said, which is, was, was really interesting on populism, and now in Britain or even in Italy, so being other parties were able to exploit that phenomenon. Yeah, you're right. You have to be able to, to exploit 
those fears of the uh, of the electorate of the, of the population. But you can only do that if there are no ethnic barriers. Uh, if a Scot with a National Scottish Party would like to represent the Englishmen or the English women, most most likely would feel rejected by them just because you were at the head of a national a nationalistic party coming from Scotland. Um, in Italy, that doesn't exist. Uh, even so, you have to consider that Northern Italy is the a dominant model, cultural model in Italy. So it was easy and it was only viable for a person from Northern Italy, such as Salvini, to do so. Uh, if, if, it, if it was the other way around, if it was a person from Southern Italy that was at the head of a, of a nationalistic party coming from Southern Italy, it wouldn't be accepted in Northern Italy if you wanted to become an Italian nationalist. Uh, just because we we have a different, a different model, a cultural model. It wouldn't be accepted, but it was still po possible somehow. It was hard, but it'd be possible. If there were ethnic groups, very clear ethnic groups, that, that wouldn't be possible. But, it, but it's just my, my assumption here. And I know we're not talking about this, but it was, it's a very in, in, interesting debate that I, that I oh, like, no, we, that I like we, to we could definitely talk. We, we can talk about it a little bit, but I think you're, you're already giving away the argument when you talk about Northern Italians and Southern Italians. That difference in and of itself, even though it maybe is not technically ethnic, it's certainly a serious division. Um, you know, the, the United Kingdom is so interesting because I mean, you're, you're kind of right. You have multiple national identities, um, whether it's Irish or Welsh or Scottish and English. And then for a bunch of different reasons that we do, probably don't have time to go into now, but we could go into some other time, a United Kingdom springs up. And there's a period there where it's better for Scotland to be a part of Britain, to be part of a British identity. And some of the most nationalistic representatives of the British Empire were Scotsmen because they had an almost nationalistic feeling towards the British Empire's mission mm -hmm. is the way that you know, they did towards the Scottish nation. What has broken down in recent years in the UK, and we'll see if, it is if these sentiments are strong enough to break that union, is that um, the British whole is not necessarily good for everybody still. Um, there is a feeling that it would be better to just have a Scottish nation and for Scots to make decisions about themselves because whatever made that British identity, those British values, whatever made that good for the Scottish people is no longer good. I think you can map that on to exactly what you were saying about Russia. I would say that, you know, from an American's position over here, Russia's European. So, of course, of the course Western Europeans have an, have an interesting, they have a different relationship with it because they're further away. But you certainly felt threatened by Russia when the Soviet Union was knocking on the door of Western Europe. You mm -hmm. certainly felt threatened when, when the Soviet Union was in a more powerful place. I don't think that the Polish view towards Russia and the Western European view towards Russia has anything more to do with the fact that Russia is just a much weaker power and that you know, the Italians and the French and the Spanish, they don't have anything to fear from this version of Russia. I think it's debatable whether Poland has anything to fear from this version of Russia. I think part of what's going on with Poland is a paranoia uh, about having lost their independence so recently, and they can't seem to understand that Russia can't take them right now. If we're in eastern Ukraine, that's another story. If I was in eastern Ukraine, I'd be terrified. Or in western Ukraine, if I'm in Kiev, yeah, I'm going to be a lot more scared of the Russians. But if I'm any of these others, I would think that it's not that big of a deal. And I mean, just to get to your point about Turkey as well, Russia also has a very complicated relationship with Turkey. In, in Russia's relationship with Turkey, it's much more of a European type power. And when you think back to the last time that Turkey was actually um, you know, a real threat to Europe, I mean, what you had the Venetian Republic and Russian, the Russian Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, they all came together to try and fight you know, the Ottoman Empire. Um, so I, I think it's, I don't know that it has anything to do, I'm sure some of it has to do with language and with religion, you know, Christianity versus Islam. But I think part of it is also just a reflection of the balance of power and that Turkey is emerging as a serious contender for power in the Mediterranean and the European Union and even countries like in Italy, like a France, like a Spain, they haven't had to make decisions about, okay, well, what are we going to do to protect you know, the Mediterranean from the Ottoman Empire, they haven't even had to go there. And suddenly, you know, the Turkey is building permanent military bases in Libya, and suddenly Russia and France have more in common. I think Macron and Putin are talking on the phone today about it. So um, 
which probably also makes you uncomfortable because, well, how, how is Italy feeling about NATO these days? I mean, you just saw two of two of the most important NATO members and certainly two of the closest NATO members to Italy, France and Turkey, are in a little war of words because they're saying both both sides are being irresponsible NATO members. Are, do you feel from the Italian perspective that NATO is still something that is valuable or that like the European Union, it's, it's lacking some kind of um, underlying resilience or under, underlying reason for its existence? NATO is a different story. Yeah, of course, as you said, there are some um, there's something in common with the European Union, but it's a different story uh, because I think people around Europe, maybe not not all all people around Europe, of course, but uh, the majority of them uh, understands that uh, NATO is is revolved around the United States. Uh, so it's not it's not even a matter of choice. It's it's an, a defense a defensive umbrella that uh, that we have, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's easier to to have it than than to uh, to abandon. I think, and uh, it's even useful when it comes to military spending. We we do not spend that much, of course, uh, and uh, NATO is useful for that matter. Uh, but. Uh, uh, um, the Poles or even Romania or the Baltic states, they still consider uh, Russia uh, an existential threat. And to them, NATO, being part of NATO is really important, definitely more important than uh, for the West European countries. Um, so to us, NATO is something that we take for granted. And uh, we, we, in Italy, but also I'd say in, in Spain and France and, 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 and Portugal and so forth, uh, Germany is a different story, of course, but the Netherlands, NATO is not even part of the debate. We do, we do not debate much. We do not talk about much about NATO. It's just, it's not that important. Uh, it's right there and we, we, we kind of take it for granted. Uh, about Turkey and France kind of quarreling in the Mediterranean Sea right now, and in Libya especially, um, that's a different story, especially for Italy. And um, Libya is a different story altogether. Uh, let's say that uh, after 2011, when person Gaddafi was toppled and was toppled, especially because the, the French and partly uh, the Brits wanted wanted him to go, just because the France especially wanted to uh, replace Italy as the uh, main, uh, um, let's say, uh, as the main country dealing with Libya and want to be soft here. Um, so France kind of uh, wanted to. Uh, to get rid of uh, Gaddafi, it's sort of uh, against Italy, and of course we understood that. The problem is that uh, the new regime that uh, France envisioned never really uh, happened, never really materialized right there. And Libya, as a fraction country, of course, uh, split into uh, different different parts and so forth. And uh, Rome here, uh, since 2011, considers. Libya impossible uh, to uh, return to to what to what it was before to a unified country. Uh, so um, for the past few years, uh, the Italian government what wanted to do any government I hear I, I mean here uh, wanted to to have sort of a, a good relations with the main militias that were fighting on 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 the Libyan soil. And even with their backers, with uh, the external powers backing those militias. So yeah, formally, Italy, for example, is uh, right at the side of, of Tripoli, of the, the uh, official government from Tripoli, of course, backed by Turkey and Qatar, and formally by, by the U.S. and, and, and the U.K. But uh, we, um, we have, I mean, Italy has... Uh, uh, it, it continues to talk with uh, Aftar, with Russia, with Egypt, with France, that of course are on the other side of, of the story, just because Italy thinks that the country cannot be unified anymore. So we just have to wait for those parts and to, to become more, uh, to become clearer and for the fighting to kind of subdue in the next months. The problem with this tactics is not even a strategy. The problem with this tactic is that uh, in the meantime, other powers uh, uh, will replace Italy and our uh, energy interests. It could possibly expel Italy from the country altogether. Uh, I'm talking about Turkey, for example, or even Russia, for that matter. The yeah, or even Russia. There was that report this morning that the Russian mercenaries took over 
the oil field, right? Yeah, yeah, in, in eastern Libya, because yeah. uh, Russia wants to control mostly eastern Libya and have their own installations on the Mediterranean Sea. So waiting is not an option here. The problem with Italy that that, that is not willing to go to war for it, because our uh, public uh, wouldn't possibly understand, wouldn't tolerate a war in Libya, even though there, there's no, uh, there's no um, country that is more strategic than Libya to Italy around the world, possibly. Um, but uh, our public opinion, of course, Italy is, uh, is uh, uh, an old country when it comes to its population. And uh, and the public opinion has been educated throughout the years to believe that wars were, were something of the past, that the European Union should intervene as a subject and so forth. So it's kind of difficult to explain to them that things are quite different in reality. Um, but France, for example, and I and I finish here on Libya, uh, unless you want to talk about this a bit more, uh, France, as I said, has always been, always, let's say, has been for the past years on the other side of the fighting uh, from Italy and Libya. But now we're kind of attached to France just because what Italy's been trying to do is get the U.S. more involved in Libya, as you can confirm or you can say uh, that, uh, what you, well, of course, what you think about this. The U.S. is not that interested or maybe it's not interested at all in Libya, unless they think, the, the Americans, I mean, they think about Russians being in Libya uh, with their own installations and bases. And that what uh, Italy has been trying to say to the Americans for the past months. Now France is trying to uh, tell the Americans that Turkey is a threat, that uh, Turkey should be, uh, be kept in check a bit more and that the U.S. should get more involved in Libya. And a couple of days ago, there was a trail just, uh, just in the, um, uh, just in front of the coast of Sicily, with the American Navy and French Navy and, and the Italian Navy, just to 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 threaten, at least try to threaten Turkey and Russia from doing too much in Libya. So Italy is in this dire situation and trying to get attached to France, even though France is on the other side of the, the fighting, and even though France has always been against Italy and Libya, let's say for for a century, or even longer than that, but especially since 2011. Dario, do you think that Turkey will be in NATO in 10 years? Uh, in 10 years, it's hard, to, it's hard to say. You can't even stay in NATO, but just being something different, as, as it's, it, it already is, I think. Turkey is, is too important to be just a satellite of the U.S. Being NATO means being a satellite. Oh, I... I... I don't think Turkey is going to be anybody's satellite exactly. anymore. If we're, if, if we're seeing anything out of Turkey, it's that they're I, going to pursue their interests. I agree with you. There's no way that Turkey can be a satellite of the U.S. or any other power. And being if being NATO means being a satellite of the U.S., then Turkey will be out. Um, it will go out, I think. I don't know if in 10 years, you can even stay in 10 years inside NATO, but uh, just doing it some, some business somewhere else. Um just, and, and I and I do not uh, blame this, or I do not credit uh, Erdogan for this development, just because Turkey is too important on itself. I think that uh, the Turkish people just kind of uh, gotten rid of you know, the inferiority complex that they have developed for the past decades uh, towards the West, and uh, basically they they want their empire back. They think that Turkey cannot exist as a nation as a nation state. Uh, it has to be something more in the Middle East and in Northern Africa, of course, and maybe even the Balkans. Um, if, you, if you see, if you take a look at Erdogan, Erdogan's rallies in Bosnia, for example, they're, they're massive. They're huge. There are like hundreds of thousands of people listening to Erdogan in the streets of Sarajevo or something. So uh, Turkey is too important. I don't know if in 10 years it will still be there, but uh, it'll be... It'll be uh, definitely a great power in 10, 15 years. The problem with this is what the U.S. will do about this. I think there, there's, and I want to know your opinion on this. I think that in 10, 15 years, even maybe even even earlier than that, the U.S. will have to uh, take a stand, a clear stand towards Turkey, and uh, relationship, the Turkish-American relationship, will definitely deteriorate in the, the next few years. Yeah, I think that we can agree on. But let me let me turn the question around mm -hmm. on you and, and ask it a different way. Uh, will France be in NATO in ten years? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, Fr Fr France has got a France keep. Uh, let's say that France keeps a uh, uh, 
high standard geopolitical tools. Let's call them that way. Uh, France, France uh, thinks of itself as a, as a great power. And France, the, the French know that maybe France is the only country the Americans have got a sort of an inferiority complex towards. Uh, Americans do not ad admit that, but they tend to listen to the French people more than they do of maybe coming from anybody else around the world. Um, Fran French people tend to exploit that. Um, but uh, I don't think that France will, will ever leave NATO. De Gaulle is not there, right? is not there anymore. Yeah, uh, demography is not that bad for France. France will have 80 million people at uh, maybe in 2050, if you consider uh, projections about that, which means uh, that, uh, I'm sorry, 80 million people, I meant, uh, in in, 20, in 2050, and which means that basically France will almost have uh, as much population as European Russia. Uh, and of course, France is a nuclear power, but I don't think we'll leave NATO. I don't think we'll become hostile towards the U.S., not at all. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I asked that question just because Macron spends so much time talking about his European army. And it seems to me that you were right, that Germany is the real economic beating heart of the European Union. And now that Ger Germany has invested itself fully in this EU next generation phase, you know, they're going to be the dominant economic power. Mm -hmm. And a lot of how the EU evolves economically will depend on Germany's endurance in maintaining that perspective. But France, I think, is, you know, now that Britain is leaving, France is the dominant military power in the bloc. And uh -huh. it's going to be interesting to see how France tries to push that forward and whether it's going to be able to convince either some of the European member states or all of the European member states or some of the NATO states to be a part of, I guess, could we call them French satellites? You know, a, a grouping that is more independent of the United States, United States, especially a United States that has become so volatile and so unpredictable under President Trump and which will probably be volatile volatile and unpredictable going forward for the next couple election cycles, no matter who's mm -hmm. in the White House. Um, to, to the, let's put it the, this way, and then I have a question for you. To the French European Army or European Armed Forces are basically this. Uh, they're paid by the Germans and commanded by the French. Uh, and I do not think the Germany will ever uh, accept that. There's no way. Uh, the Germans... They, they will try to hide themselves behind France as they as they usually do when it comes to military uh, military issues and the geopolitical issues I even say but the European army will, will, will I think will never be there and that, here's the question for you what what do you think NATO's main purpose is nowadays how would you describe NATO's main purpose nowadays uh, NATO's main purpose is to be a military alliance to constrain the ambitions of the Soviet Union, which is not there anymore. And which, 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 which is which is exactly its problem. Its purpose <laughs> is to is to be an alliance against an entity that doesn't exist anymore. To to me is is a bit different than that. Of course, you read about this. The Soviet Union is, is not there anymore, and it hasn't been around for uh, uh, almost thirty years now. Uh, to me, NATO is still valuable to the Americans because NATO, NATO's main purpose is to prevent European powers, especially Germany, but not only Germany, to get back to being a military power. Uh, and NATO is useful for that matter. Um, to me, and I and I talk about this uh, with other with other uh, people from from America. Um, to me, Europe is still the most important continent of the world. There's no way to dominate the world if you do not control Europe. I do not believe at all in the Asian uh, century, as they, as they call it, not at all. Not even the North American century. Uh, uh, yeah, being in North America for the US is incredibly, incredibly valuable just because you're always far from, from any other region and you can retreat, you can go back. But if you do not control Europe, uh, there is no way that you can control the world still because not, not only because of the economy, also because of the cultural uh, power that Europe still has and the prestige the real, the Europe still has. Just a quick example here. Uh, if we were living in a, in a nation century, the U.S. couldn't possibly be the only superpower, still the only superpower, the only global superpower, uh, because the U.S. doesn't control Asia, but the U.S. still controls Europe. And that's, that's still clear. 
And that's, the, that's NATO's main purpose to me, prevent European countries, especially Germany, to, uh, to getting back being a military power as well. That's how I see it. I, I think there is disagreement in the United States at the highest levels about NATO's strategic purpose. I think the purpose that you lay out is one argument, and I'm not one of these people who thinks that NATO needs to go away. I think, like you say, NATO has value as a tool to the United States, but the United States really has no sense of its strategy going forward. And that means that the extent to which the United States can manage a relationship like NATO or direct that tool is necessarily weakened. Um, I'm, I'm with you in the sense that um, nobody can control the world anymore. I mean, we're, we're, we're just in a multipolar environment. Um, if the United States, you know, devoted all of its resources and all of its political will towards dominating the world, maybe the United States has enough power to do it, but the United States isn't interested in that. And that's never how U.S. power has worked anyway. So I think we're just in this space where you're going to have these different nodes of power throughout the world. And in that sense, um, Look, I, I think you're right that it's the European relationship is important to the United States. And there's that old, uh, what's what's the, is it Kissinger who was like, when I call Europe, who do I need to call? Like, who do I call? Yeah. Like Kissinger, yeah. yeah. What's, yeah. Kissinger. what's the phone number he said? Yeah. Right, which is uh, such a, such a silly point in some ways. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think part of the problem there is that the United States you said that Italy had taken NATO for granted. I think the United States takes Europe for granted. I mean, the United States, you know, we've been talking about a U.S.-China trade war for how yeah. long now? The United States just declared a trade war on the European Union and thinks that <laughs> its relationship with the European Union and European member states is going to be just fine, even though it's declaring a trade war on it. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's doing that to Canada too, but the European Union is not Canada. The European Union, when it wants to be, is an incredibly powerful body. So I, th I think if American behavior continues in this direction, um, I think you're right. I think that Europe is going to feel the need to have more uh, strategic capabilities. And I think you've already heard Merkel say that. You've already heard Macron say that. I think mm -hmm. others are sort of, you, you, I think the way that Italy has hedged its bets as well sort of says that. Yeah. You welcome the Russians in to help with COVID-19. You sign up for the Belt and Road Initiative. You still maintain close relationships with the United States and push the United States uh, to sort of be that guardian of the liberal order. Um, that Italy has so benefited from, and a lot of the European nations have benefited from. So mm -hmm. um, it's 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 a difficult proposition. But let me let me ask you one more question, Dario, and we'll get mm -hmm. you out of here on this question. Um, <laughs> the last time I the last time I saw you uh, was right when Italy was announcing that it was going to sign up for the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so give me a sense of how you or how Italians or both are feeling about China in the wake of COVID-19 and whether you think there's been any material change in your perspective or the Italian perspective towards China or whether things are just the same and it's just sort of business as usual and trying to figure out how to balance between these forces. Well, if you, if you take the, uh, the polls, uh, since we, we started this conversation by mentioning a poll you did, uh, if you take uh, a very recent poll that was published here in Italy, it's, I think at the end of April, I said it was right after the... Uh, uh, the Chinese um, ate coming to Italy uh, during the, the peak of, of the epidemic, with the pandemic, as you want to call it. Um, people here were seeing that right now, China is a, uh, is a, is a power uh, that can be trusted much more than the U.S., is, is, is more trustworthy than the U.S., uh, much more, I'd say, if you, if you take out that pulse, um, it's like 40%. Uh, of Italians think more about China uh, more than any other country, and just 18 or 20 percent uh, think of the U.S. in 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 the same terms. Uh, but here you have to consider something. Of course, people tend to look at the news. They tend to see uh, statements. They tend to analyze those statements. Even journalists. And uh, as you mentioned before, the U.S. has been playing its cards very badly. Uh, for the past for the past few years, I'd say, uh, just becoming sort of uh, uh, being perceived as hostile. Um, that's that's something that, that that is not beneficial to the U.S. Uh, in 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 the in the first place. Um, and China, on the other hand, when it comes to propaganda, well, uh, there's American propaganda. There's also Chinese propaganda. When it comes to the propaganda, it's been playing its cards uh, very good. I'd say. Um, China has been sending uh, uh, 
uh, eight to Italy um, during the, the COVID-19 uh, crisis for the past months. And also the Better Road Initiative, so far we haven't seen any strategic projects uh, become a reality, but the perception of it is still very, very good here in Italy. Also because we are an economy-oriented country, as, as I'd say, all satellites, we tend to look at economy just because strategy is not even something for us. If, if we're part of NATO, if we're still part of uh, what, what we say here at the American Empire, um, we, we cannot possibly uh, consider strategy on our own. We have to always think of ourselves inside the European Union and alongside the U.S. and so forth. So we tend to look at, 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 uh, at the economy uh, more often than the uh, geopolitical domain. And uh, China, to us, I don't understand why, actually, but that's the uh, that's the, the the public opinion feeling. Public opinion's feeling. China, to us, going forward, uh, could be more beneficial than in the U.S. for our economy. That's what people think. That's why China is now is now held and such high esteem around Italy, and not only around Italy, let's say around Europe. Even though Chinese economy is not doing well at all, even though uh, the Bad Road Initiative maybe will never uh, become a true reality in the sense that Xi Jinping uh, explained in, in, in the past few years. Uh, so I, I guess that, that uh, and, I, and I'll finish, I guess that uh, Italy's, and not only Italy, it's even Spain's or other Central Eastern European countries uh, uh, feeling, positive feeling towards China has to do with the U.S. playing very badly at some cards for the past few years. And also those countries being uh, economy-oriented, not understanding uh, the geopolitical reality that much and concentrating more, focusing more on economy and understanding, as I said, something that I can possibly grasp, but understanding that China is the future when it comes to the economy, even though to me that, that won't happen, but uh, that's the feeling around here. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.